Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. Take yourselves back to July 15th. 1859. Take yourselves to Niagara Falls. And across Niagara Falls, stretching about a quarter of a mile, is a tightrope. And the most famous tightrope walker in the world at the time is a gentleman by the name of Charles Blondin. Maybe you've heard of Charles Blondin. A few weeks leading up to July 15th, Blondin had been practicing. He'd been walking back and forth across this tightrope, and crowds began to gather. People were amazed. He would walk across the tightrope in various forms and various fashions. He would blindfold himself and walk across. And then there were other times where he would walk backwards, maybe perhaps doing the moonwalk on his way back. Charles Blondin was known for being able to walk across the tightrope. He, he did it in stilts. Uh, there, there's even rumors that he might have even used roller skates. This guy was pretty incredible. Well, finally, a a large crowd had gathered on that July 15th day. It was a hot day at the Niagara Falls, and Charles Blondin had with him a wheelbarrow. True story. He walked across Niagara Falls with wheelbarrow, and there were rocks that had been placed into this wheelbarrow. And he walked back and forth, and people went crazy. They thought it was absolutely astounding with what Charles Blondin was doing. So Charles Blondin, he gets back across where the crowd is, and he tumps out the, the wheelbarrow full of rocks, and he says, how many of you believe that I can walk across the Niagara Falls? And they all went nuts. They all raised their hands and said, yes, we believe. And then he said, well, how many of you believe that I can take a, a person, a human being, and put him right here in this wheelbarrow and walk across the tightrope and back. And they all raised their hands and said, yes, Charles Blondin, we believe. And then you know the next question. Which one of you is willing to hop in the wheelbarrow and walk with me across the Niagara Falls? And all of a sudden, a hush fell over the crowd. Friends, I, I want you to fill out this first blank on your, order, on your uh, service order right there where my sermon is. Jesus wants you to develop a faith that works. Not just a faith that talks, but a faith that works. You see, in that crowd, there were people who were claiming to have faith. They were claiming to believe. They had the lip service. They had shown up for a service, in fact. And they were there in worship, right? But when the call came to get into the wheelbarrow, nobody wanted to do it. Just last night, about 7.30, I was in room 4514 at Mobile Infirmary. I was hanging out with my friend Randy Stembridge. And many of you know Randy was in a horrible car accident a few days ago. It left him hazed, dazed, confused. But I, I was asking Randy, I said, Randy, you know Jesus loves you. Do you know that, Randy? And Randy didn't really look at me, but you know what Randy said? He said, Jesus 
is in control. That's a profound statement of a man whose life has been turned upside down, who's, who at one point was looking at death right in the eyeball, and yet is still able to say, Jesus is in control. Now that's some faith. That's a man that's not afraid to get in the wheelbarrow. That's, not, that's a man who says, I'm not going to turn my back on Jesus. No, I'm going to keep rolling along life with him. Now that's a faith that works. Now this morning, we're going to come to a really interesting story. We're going to come to Luke chapter 7, verses 1, and, 1 through 10. And I want to give you a little bit of a context. Uh, Jesus has finished his Sermon on the Mount. We spent the better part of the summer in Luke chapter 6. It literally took us all summer long to go verse by verse through Luke chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount, you can find an expanded version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4, 5, and 6, a much more broad spectrum of the words that Jesus said. But we've just concluded Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and now that some of the most important teachings that Jesus has ever delivered are concluded, the crowd is sort of left with this feeling of, what now, Jesus? I mean, what are we supposed to do with all of this, this information that you've given to us? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to implement these teachings that you've delivered that were radically different in those days than they are now, but radically different? People had never heard these sort of teachings and the, and the twist that Jesus would give some of these instructions and education that he had delivered. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at more of the practical application of Luke chapter 6 being born out in Luke chapter 7. Today, in Luke 7, Jesus is moving towards Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, if you know your geography, Capernaum is located in northern Israel. It's right there along the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum had a population of about 2,000 people, which may seem small in today's language, but that's actually a fairly large city in the ancient world. Uh, there's a, a, a very interesting point here that uh, Capernaum was sort of the, the jump-off point. It was sort of the launching pad for Jesus' ministry. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all called Capernaum their hometown. They all lived there and grew up there. And so while in Capernaum, Jesus is introduced to a centurion. So a centurion of the Roman Empire, and underneath this centurion was a minimum of a command of 100 men. He was not a Jew, but he was also not a Roman. He was a Gentile. And what you'll notice as we begin to read this story is that this Roman centurion was rather uh, favorable towards Jewish authorities and, more importantly, Jewish religion. So many scholars believe that this centurion, who was not Roman and not a Jew, but probably somebody that Rome had conquered and who had impressed into Roman service. So his people had been conquered, but he found himself with a job, and now he's living in Capernaum, and he has a very large problem. He has a servant who is ill, a servant who is actually near death. Now, Luke would go on and call this man and people like him, he would call him a God-fearer. That's how Luke actually described them. Not Jewish, not Roman, but someone who respected and feared the Lord. So, 
when we come to this story, you'll see that this man being a God-fearer, someone that respected Jesus immensely, was also following Jewish protocols of the day. If you didn't know this, it was very rude for a Gentile to speak to a, speak directly face-to-face to a Jewish rabbi. And so this man, this centurion, employs the help of other Jews, and he sends them on a mission to Jesus. Find Jesus and ask him to heal my servant. So we have here a a rather respectful tone, which is a a bit of a change because most Roman citizens were not very respectful of Jews, of Jewish religion, and as we come to find out towards the end of Jesus' life, certainly Jesus himself. So this morning I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 10, uh, reading from the English Standard Version, if you will. You can follow along with me on the screens or right there in your own Bibles. And it says this, after he had finished all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, there he's referring to Luke 6, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death and who was highly valued by him. Make sure you underline that. This man had a servant and he was highly valued by him. Now most scholars will tell you that they believe this servant was from the African portion of the world, specifically North African is generally where this man would have been from. So he certainly would have come from a different nationality. More likely he would have even been a different ethnicity than what the centurion had. So verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for them, for he loves our nation, speaking of the Jewish nation, and he is the one who has built us our synagogue, their home of worship. So this man is unusually friendly to the Jewish people. And Jesus went with them. It wasn't just enough for Jesus to hear the request. Jesus decides to go. And while he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I I do not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And when my servant says, do this, he does it. And when Jesus heard this, verse 9, and when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, primarily Jewish crowd, he says, I tell you that none in Israel have I found such faith. And then those things who had been, excuse me, and when those things who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. They found the servant well. So this morning, four very brief points I want to share with you. Four features of faith that I believe amaze Jesus. And now I'm talking now in our personal context. I'm not just talking about the four features of faith that this centurion had, but four features of faith that we can have that I believe amaze Jesus. The first point is this. I believe that Jesus is looking for us to have a sensitive faith. I believe that Jesus is looking for us to have a sensitive faith. Again, we're introduced to a centurion who had a a very particular problem. His servant is sick. 
the man is near death and the servant, or excuse me, the centurion has run out of options. There's no hospital, there's no doctor, there's no medicine. If something isn't done, if something miraculous doesn't take place, this man's servant will die. And before we really get into the miracle, let's talk about the man. We really don't know that much about the man uh, outside of two things. We know that he was a servant. We know that he was sick. The Greek language tells us that he was a doulos. Now, if you know what that means is Paul often refers to himself as a doulos, a bondservant or a slave in his writings. In Roman society, a, a slave was worth only what someone was willing to pay for a slave. So they weren't worth very much. They were on the very bottom end of the totem pole in Roman society. Slaves were a, slaves were a dime a dozen uh, in those days in the ancient world. If, if uh, you had a slave and that slave died, no matter, you just go buy another slave. So we're, we're talking about in trading flesh. We're talking about in, in buying people. It's a very ugly thing, but it took place back in the ancient world. Roman magistrates would very rarely waste time for medicating slaves. Roman magistrates would often waste very little time if a slave was killed or murdered. There was usually no investigation because they were seen as property. Most didn't really care if a slave lived or died. Scripture infers that this man, though, was not just any slave. This man had become a friend to the centurion. He was loved even though his social standing was way, way, way less than his master. This man was a slave, but he was also sick. Scripture tells us that this man was near death and the situation was dire and getting worse. So somehow in the course of time, this man be, begins to curry favor with his owner. And Luke tells us that this slave was in ESV language, highly regarded. Again, go back to the word, the Greek word for highly regarded, and you realize that there's other definitions as well. It tells us that this man was prized, that this man was precious to this Roman centurion. So much so that the Roman centurion pleaded with Jesus to heal him and make him well again. This centurion was sensitive to the hurt that was around him. The centurion did not see this man as a slave. He saw this man as a human being, a child of God, someone born in the image of God without maybe even understanding that language directly. He saw this slave as someone to be cared for, loved, and to be given compassion I really believe, now this is my heart. When I read this scripture, I was immediately convicted. I really believe that faith that moves Jesus is a faith that is responsive to the needs of others around us. It's a faith that sees hurting people and desires to help them. It's a faith that is compassionate to those that have less than us, that look different than us, or from different circumstances than us. I know that slavery doesn't necessarily exist in the United States, thank God. It doesn't exist in the United States any longer. But there are people in the United States and, of course, around the world that have very low social standing in our communities and in our country. They're the, the forgotten ones. They're the homeless, the broken, the foster kid, the orphan, the drunk, the addict, the refugee, the prisoner, the immigrant. All of these people, I believe, that Jesus cares about. The same kind of people that when you read through the gospel narratives, these are the same people that Jesus went out of his way 
to minister to. So the question that I have for myself is how sensitive is my faith? How sensitive is my faith? For some, having a sensitive faith is being kind to the outcast kid, the kid that sits alone at school, the kid that looks different, that eats by themselves, and they seemingly don't have a friend. So being kind and being sensitive means to spend time with that person. For others, it may mean that you're sensitive to the coworker who's going through a divorce, for a coworker who's going through some type of financial strain, they've lost everything, being sensitive to that person. Maybe it's being merciful to someone that's offended you in some way and letting it go and allowing someone to have a bad moment in their life and setting aside that offense for just a half a second and trying to understand what that person is going through. No matter what the circumstance, I really believe that Jesus loves a faith that is sensitive towards the hurting people, not just in your life, in your situation, in your surroundings, but the people that are all around you, whether it be Daphne, Spanish Fort Fairhope, or beyond. Being sensitive means having your eyes open and looking around, longing to help the people that need most help. Psalm 34, verse 18 says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Aren't you thankful today that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and that he wants to save those who've been crushed in spirit? Maybe some of you in this audience here today, you've been that broken person, you've been that crushed individual, and you're thankful today that you've got a savior that doesn't just care about the kings and queens, but he also cares about the down and outs. I know I am. So I believe that one of the features of faith that amazes Jesus is the sensitive faith of a centurion caring for a lowly servant. The second one is this. I believe that a feature that impresses Jesus, that amazes Jesus, is not just a sensitive faith, but a specific faith. A specific faith. Look how specific this centurion is with Jesus. In verse 3, he says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. That is a very specific request. The centurion, he got to the point. He went to Jesus with a specific request, heal my servant. Notice that it was not a demand, but it was a request. However, God, I really believe, wants us to be very specific in what we're asking of him. How specific are your prayers? How specific are your requests of the Lord? So how can we model the centurion's faith in our lives? Well, why, why is it that God seems to respond more to specific requests than general requests? When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he could have said, pray, bless us, Lord, or help us, Lord. But he didn't say that. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples to specifically pray? He said, give us this day what? Our daily bread. That's a very specific request. Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because without daily bread, people starve. Without daily bread in the ancient world, people die. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, listen, know what you want and ask for what you want. Be very specific. For those of us that are parents in this room, do we not get frustrated with our kids when they're not very specific in their requests of us? 
I have three kids. I promise you, I get frustrated. Just tell me what you want. Uh, Men in the room, do you not get frustrated with your wives when they're not very specific? Um, I never get frustrated with my wife in that area, but I know some people do. Ladies, what about you? I know ladies, because men are notorious for not being very specific in their requests. Some women have to pull information out of their husbands. I will tell you this, true of fact, early in my marriage, one of the great frustrations of my wife was that she had to pull information out of me, that I was not always just an open book that she could read. And so we get frustrated when we don't have specific requests. And what if you were to turn to Mark chapter 10 and you look in verse 46 through 52, you come across the story of Bartimaeus. You might know the name Blind Bartimaeus. Remember Blind Bartimaeus? He was outside the city walls. Jesus was walking by and he had all of his disciples and all, of, all the people following Jesus were with him, big crowds of people. And when Blind Bartimaeus heard Jesus coming, Bartimaeus went nuts. He started screaming and shouting, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. He made such a colossal scene that Jesus' followers and disciples tried to shut him up. Hey, this guy's being too loud. Be quiet. Jesus doesn't want to hear those requests. Finally, Jesus is so awestruck. This man won't be quiet. He walks over to him and he says, Bartimaeus, what do you want? See, Bartimaeus was saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus came in Mark chapter 10 and says, Bartimaeus, I want to have mercy on you, but what specifically do you want me to do? And Bartimaeus says, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus says, may it be done. Boom, and he's healed. In every instance, by the way, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in particular, In every instance where there is a very specific request of Jesus, a very specific request, Jesus grants that request. The more specific, the better. Now, understand that just because you pray a very specific request doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is going to grant you that request. Your request has to be in line with what God's will is. Oh, friend, I have tried praying for a million dollars, trust me. Jesus has yet to give that to me. But you know what I have begun to pray in my life? Lord, help me be more financially responsible. Help me be more fiscally conservative. Lord, help me to be wiser with my money. Help me to make wiser investments. So it's not some broad thing. It's very specific in my own life. And as I have gotten older, the Lord has begun to answer those requests in my life. And do you know what's happened? The more fiscally conservative I've gotten, the more financially responsible I've become. Guess what? I have more available cash. I have more available cash for my family. I have more available cash to give. So it's not just, Lord, give me more. It's, Lord, help me be responsible with what I've got that helps. This man, this centurion, was very, very specific. Friend, I believe that when we are specific with our needs, it helps define what our needs really are. Often in prayer, I've asked God to do something, and and soon I've heard myself saying something like, well, Lord, that's not exactly what I wanted. It's not that, but it's this other thing that I really ultimately need. For example, I've said these words, and probably you have as well. Lord, bless me. 
Lord, bless me. Lord, bless me won't lead him to recognize that I don't need a, a raise as much as I need to, uh, for him to say, well, Stuart, stop buying so much stuff. If you stop buying stuff, you'll have greater blessing. Or maybe I don't need a new coworker, but maybe the wisdom to love and humility to, to try to resolve a conflict that I have with a coworker. Praying for a specific need emphasizes on our dependence on an intimacy with God. Lord, I understand that if I pray this need I, outside of you, I can't receive anything. All God wants to do is he wants to bless us, but outside of these needs I have, I cannot fulfill this need. I need you to fulfill this need. I am wholeheartedly dependent on you, Lord. Praying for uh, specific needs makes us more alert to God's answers. Have you ever noticed that when you begin to pray for specific things, you see God moving more than in general areas of your life? So when you say, Lord, bless me, well, trust me, the Lord is blessing you. He's blessing you hand over fist. But when you have a specific prayer need and you give him that specific prayer need, when you journal those requests down, you can see the hand of God moving at a momentum that you didn't see before. Be specific. The centurion had a specific problem and in a faith, he brought that specific problem to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus answered that specific request, and he answered it quickly. Perhaps God's answers to us seem slow because we're not praying specific enough prayers, and God is waiting for us to decide what we really want him to do. Instead of praying things like, God, make me a better parent, pray, God, help me to be patient with my kids and not yell at them for doing the same things that I did when I was their age. Instead of praying, God, help me to be a better spouse, pray, God, help me to speak encouraging words to my husband or to my wife. Now, this one cuts close to home. Instead of praying, God, help me lose weight, pray, God, give me the energy and discipline required to wake up early to exercise and not eat so many oatmeal cream pies. Those are good, though, man. A faith that Jesus responds to, I truly believe this, a faith that Jesus responds to is a specific faith. Mark 11 Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. Four features of faith that amaze Jesus, a sensitive faith. This man was sensitive to the hurt that was going on around him. He has a specific faith. Lord, heal my servant. Very, very to the point. Third one is a strong faith. A strong faith. Verses six through eight, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion in this moment, in this text, he understands authority. 
He knew how authority works, especially in like a, a military sense. And he applied this military sense of authority to his own spiritual sense of authority. Where Whatever he commanded, he knew that his orders would be followed to the letter. And he knew the same thing of Jesus because Jesus certainly had greater authority than certainly his emperor Caesar. He knew that if Jesus commanded it to be done, that it would be done. And Jesus... I know that if you say it to be so, then it will be so. If you want my servant to be healed, just say the word and he will be healed. And Jesus says, word. Word. He's healed. Now that's some pretty amazing faith. That's strong faith. The centurion's faith was amazing to Jesus. And in the following verse, Jesus remarks that there's no one who is more faithful in all of Israel than this Gentile God-fearer. And that is quite a statement by Jesus, considering that in his back pocket, he had 12 disciples that would eventually establish the church, which is why we're here today. That's an amazing statement. And you might be saying this morning, well, it's easy to have faith when at the end of the day the servant was healed. But preacher, what happens to my faith when I pray a specific request, when I ask for a healing and God doesn't deliver that request? My servant wasn't healed. My servant died. And we've all been there before as well. And that's a struggle. That's a tough one. What happens to our faith when we pray for that job and we don't get it? What happens when we pray for our wayward son or daughter who's off living a prodigal life and they don't come back when I've prayed specifically that they will come back? What happens when I prayed for my mom who had cancer to be well and she's not well, she died? So what happens when I pray for my son or daughter that the Lord would protect them their whole life and yet they died at a young age. These are hard things to deal with. These are hard concepts to wrestle down. So this morning I thought I'd dive into that just a little bit. And I would say this as I pondered some of these questions. I think too many times we put our faith in the healing rather than the healer. That our faith is often attached to what we want Jesus to do for us rather than it just being attached to Jesus for what he's already done for us. We want Jesus to do. Jesus said, I've already done. I've already given enough. I died on a cross for you. So yes, your mother may have died, but your mother was a believer in Christ and she's more well today than she was when she was here on earth. Yes, I told you that I would protect your son or daughter. And you know what? Your son or daughter died at a young age according to you, but I didn't even have to allow that person to be born. And now today they're living a life that is so incredible that if you saw what they were living, you would never want them back here on planet earth. Yes, I know you've been praying for that job, but I promise you there's someone there that's gonna blow that whole, uh, that whole business aside and I don't want you caught up in that and you're too small-minded right now to see that there's a better job for you down the road. And so in this period of waiting, I'm going to do something amazing for you. We've got a gentleman in our church who lost his job a few, uh, a few months ago, came into my office and he was very upset he was wondering, one, why? God, why did you let me lose my job? And God, why haven't you already supplied me with a need? Why haven't you supplied that? I've been praying, God, give me a job. 
And for whatever reason, God had not supplied that. Well, in that period of time that this man lost his job, his mom and dad had significant, significant health issues that immediately came to the forefront. And because this man had a severance from his job, and because his mom and dad were dealing with some serious health issues, this man was able to turn his attention from things of self and say, you know what, I need to be there for mom and dad. Just on Thursday of this past week, this man wrote me this email and he said, you know what, I came into your office, I was really upset, I was really frustrated, but you know what, God knew what he was doing. God knew that my mom and my dad were going to have significant health concerns. I didn't know that. And when I lost my job, I was mad at God. And now looking back on it, I can see the hand of God turning my attention to where it really needed to be, which is not my mom and dad. Well, guess what? Now mom and dad are doing a whole lot better. And now he's got a job. Isn't it funny how God works? It's almost like God knows what he's doing. (laughs) Almost like he knows what he's doing. Now, in a case like Randy, I often scratch my head. I don't know. Uh, you know, why, why do things like this happen with Randy? A man who, who just sung up here just a few weeks ago, he sang at this microphone, and as he, as he gave great praise and worship the Lord, he walks off. Do you remember what Randy did when he walked off? He gave God a fist pump, almost like Tiger Woods when he sinks a hole. Really cool. And we all stood up and applause. Oh, man, that was great. God, why? Why do you allow something like that to happen to a guy who is a great guy, an encourager? Tony has told me on multiple occasions, I'm so thankful that Randy is on the music committee because Randy is positive. Randy's an encourager. Randy sees the good and the bad. And Randy makes me a better person. Amen, Tony? Why? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. The other day, I was in Randy's uh, room. I believe Bryant was with me. Randy's son was in there. Randy's son, he, he looks at me, and I've got my arm around Justin. Justin's a great, great guy. And Justin says, I've been so far from the Lord. It's been such a long time since I've been to church. It's been such a long time since I felt the love that I feel today. I don't understand why God allowed this to happen. But I do believe that Justin's quote is, was this. But I feel God bringing me closer to him through this experience. I don't know why we suffer. I wish I had the answer. If I did, I'd have that million dollars. But I tell you this, God has a purpose for it. Many times it's a purpose that we cannot see. It's a purpose that we cannot understand. But there is a purpose for it. And sometimes we just have to be patient. In just a moment, there's going to be a a song. And I I was going to read these lyrics, but Jeremy's going to do a better job. By the way, I had no idea that Jeremy was going to sing this song called Even If. Uh, when I was writing this sermon and Tony and I met and he was like, yeah, Jeremy's going to sing this song by Mercy Me called Even If. And I was like, what? That's the song. I mean, here it is. I've got, I've got the lyrics typed out. Tony, I was going to read it. I was going to tell people about it. And you're telling me that, that Jeremy's just going to say, I had no idea. And Tony's like, yeah. And I said, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. 
I need to come up with a sermon series for that. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In all of this, in, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God has a plan when things don't always go our way. I'm sure this centurion would have loved for his servant not to suffer, but his servant suffered so that something great could take place. And that brings me to my last point, and we'll finish with this. Four features of faith that amaze Jesus, a sensitive faith, a specific faith, a strong faith, and a shining faith. A shining faith. Verses 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even all of Israel I have found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Here's another major player in this story, the crowd. When the crowd heard these things. Friend, our faith is not about us. It's about the crowd. It's about the people. And, and I truly believe that the Lord used this centurion's faith to shine the light of the gospel, to shine the light on Jesus Christ, to put Jesus in the spotlight. Could you bring the house lights down for me, Charles? Thank you so much. Like all the way off, if you could. Nobody get up. I don't want anybody to stumble and fall. Turn them all the way off. Now, Look right here. See that? This is great. I live in a great neighborhood called Tealwood. Now, I love Christmas. It truly is one of my favorite times of the entire year. I love it. I, I get into to the lights. But you know what's really interesting? Isn't it funny that in Christmas we sometimes lose the message of the cross? We don't always talk about the cross. We're really happy to talk about the manger, but we lose the message of the cross. Friends, it's not the manger that saves, it's the cross. It's the story of the cross. This was my Easter cross from several years ago. I was convicted of this about four or five years ago. And so you know, I, I, I just prayed, Lord, help me to be a good witness to my neighbor. Lord, help me to shine Jesus on Widgeon Court. Give me some practical tool that can make people think of the cross at Christmas time. Lord, help me to have a shining faith. And so I don't know if the Lord gave this to me or maybe he implanted it in my mind, but I had my, my Easter cross right there. And so I wrapped Christmas lights around my Easter cross and I planted it right there at the front door of my house. So every time somebody drives past Stuart and Angela's house. It's not about Santa Claus. No, 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 no. It's about Jesus. Because I want people to see Jesus, to experience Jesus, to feel Jesus every time they drive by my home, especially during Christmas time. Now, I believe that Jesus wants us to shine the light of our faith on the cross, not just during Christmas. I believe he wants us to do it at work. Would people say that you shine Jesus at work? Students, would would Fellow classmates, would they say they, that you shine Jesus at school? Luke Brown, my brother, who played drums for us today, going back to UAB this afternoon. 
I pray that our college students, if you're a college student, would, would your friends at school, would they say that you shine the light of Christ at your school? It's my prayer that we will be like the centurion and that we will shine for Jesus, not for our benefit, but for the crowd's benefit. People were amazed at what Jesus had done for the centurion and for the servant. Would you bow your heads with me?